You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Another, another beautiful morning to talk about weeping and filling your bed with tears. Am I right? Um, we just started a new sermon series entitled Doctrine and Emotions. This is week two of this sermon series. And now, I cannot uh, advise you or encourage you enough to, if you didn't get a chance to listen to last week, man, Adam did a phenomenal job talking about joy. In this sermon series, we're going to look at how the Psalms shed light on our experiences and emotions as humans. As, uh, as we live life in this broken world. And so today, we are going to look at how this psalm will shed light into our experience of sorrow. Uh, last week, though, I want to make mention, Adam had a really great point that I, has been sticking with me as I've prepared and, and got ready for today. He, had, he made a point that with joy in our culture, we often will esteem joy or look at joy as almost some ungrabbable emotion that we over spiritualize joy and it becomes less of an emotion and more of a state a status a state of being whereas happiness we tend to in our culture especially in christian culture we view this as almost evil and if you feel happiness you need to repent and you need to get rid of this guilt and shame that you feel because happiness is a, a carnal thing. I think similarly, we do some things in our culture with sorrow. We esteem stoicism. We esteem having a calm, cool, collected exterior. And we minimize those who are open and honest of their need of sorrow. We're going to look at that this morning. Psalm 6. Psalm 6 allows us to shed light on how as Christ followers we experience uh, sorrow. So if you take notes, if you're a note taker, there's two themes, I think, throughout this psalm, throughout the psalms in general, but in this psalm specifically that pop out to my mind that I keep going back to, those two themes, boldness and understanding. Boldness and understanding we'll look at through this psalm. Now, a little context here. The book of Psalms, if you, opened your, if you just happen to open your Bible, likely you'll, end, you'll open up on the book of Psalms. It's the biggest book in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. It's a collection of poetry, of songs, of prayers, all meant to be a genuine, honest, vulnerable experience from real people who pour back out worship to God. We talked a few weeks ago, I was up here in the pulpit about worship. It's ascribing worth valuing God, and the Psalms do a great job of this. The book of Psalms in its entirety is divided into five books. You might see this in some of your translations, how they have it divided up. Psalm chapters 1 through 41 comprise book 1 of the Psalter, of the, of the book of Psalms. Uh, this book, 1 through 41, is considered the book of personal experience. Okay? Most of these psalms are from David. Okay? little context there. And many consider this psalm, Psalm 6, one of the first penitential songs. In some traditions of our Christian faith, they read this psalm on Ash Wednesday as a means of languishing and feeling the depth and weight of our sin. Now, in this psalm, we are unsure of the circumstances. Scholars agree that there's no certainty of what is going on in David's life as he's reading this. We don't know. We don't know what, at what point in the timeline this is happening as he's writing this, but we do know that David has experienced great, great sorrow and lament. Just to name a few, quick recourse, uh, quick review. When he was a child, he saw this giant Philistine mocking his people and his God, and he was broken by it, broken enough to do something about it. We know that story, right? Um, as he grew up in adolescence and his young life, young, young man, young adulthood, um, 
he grew into being a part of the royal family in a sense. And the king grew jealous of him. King Saul grew jealous of him and tried to murder him. Tried to have him assassinated. Deep sorrow, right? He was, because of this, most of his young adult life, it was on the run, in hiding. Deep sorrow, deep pain, deep anguish. His best friend, to make matters worse, was this king's son, Jonathan. His best friend, the the one person he found comfort in from this kingdom, was the king who was trying to kill him's son, in which he saw Jonathan, his friend, die in battle. And although the king was trying to assassinate, to kill David out of jealousy, he also lamented when King Saul died as well. Deep, deep pain. We know when he became king, he made a series of choices that were very, very unfortunate. He saw a woman, he lusted after her, he wanted her, he slept with her, and then got her pregnant, brought her husband back to try to manipulate and orchestrate the situation so that it would seem like she was pregnant from her husband, but he, Uriah, was doing the right thing to say, no, I'm supposed to be on the battlefield. So in, a, in another string of manipulation, what did he do? He put Uriah in the front lines, allowing him to be killed, to cover up his sin. When he is confronted from the prophet of his sin, he is broken. He sees the depths of what he's done, and he is, he is undone. Now, seven days after the birth of this child, the child dies. Deep sorrow. Later on in his, in his reign, he has more children. One of his children, Amnon, rapes his sister, deep, deep wickedness and sorrow. In retaliation, his other son, Absalom, kills his son, Amnon. Deep wickedness, deep sadness and sorrow. Absalom then went on, on a, similar to his dad, running, trying to plot, to manipulate, to overthrow and kill his father. This man, David, has experienced some of the worst, most awful, the things you see on Maury on television have nothing compared to what he has gone through in the depth of sorrow that he has experienced. So why do I say that? This psalm is clearly a psalm of lament. Okay? Some, some, some of the greatest songs that we listen to are over heartbreak and sorrow. But this psalm is about, some psalms talk about the morning. In the morning we will rise, or in the evening, this psalm is the darkest night of the soul. Have you been there? Have you been there? So it's been truly humbling to prepare for this because I know some of you have been through some very, very, very difficult things. And it breaks my heart to know you and to know and see some of those things unfold. And so this morning, my challenge is we open this in the next 15, 20 minutes and we go through verse by verse what this psalm looks like. Here's my challenge to you. My challenge would be to offer your heart on a platter to our God. There might be something that you're struggling with even this moment, Maybe something that you've suppressed from your past. Maybe something you're pre-grieving for your future. But I'd say this morning, in this moment, would you lay your heart bare before our God? Don't trust in me. Don't trust in this sermon. Don't trust. Let's trust our God who was there with you in the darkest night of your soul. Verse 1, 1 through 3. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? 
Again, we don't know exactly what's happening here with David, but most commentators agree in my sense from this passage. Maybe you've been there. It's when you experience deep pain and sorrow and grief, it affects you not only emotionally but physically. For me, maybe you've gotten, like me, maybe you've gotten that phone call. Your phone rings and it's at a strange time to be receiving a phone call from this person. Or maybe you hear a knock at the door and immediately that lump in your throat happens. Your gut kind of turns on its side. For me, it's always been phone calls. I'll share with you one of the most difficult times in my life and in my marriage. The day after Christmas, we're on our way to a a Christian conference, my wife and I. She gets a phone call, and her mom passed the day after Christmas, after struggling and battling with cancer. One of the immediate sobering realities of a simple phone call. Have you been there? Has something like that happened to you? Sadness, if not dealt with, if not talked about, if not uh, chatted with the Lord about, uh, in my experience, usually bubbles to the surface depression, anxiety, anger. Most of the time in my case, it bubbles up with humor because I don't want to feel it. So I try to make a joke, right? But the root of most of our Depression can be tied back to great, great sorrow. You see, we see here David saying, I feel downcast. All I want is God to hear me and give me relief. I think from these first three passages, there's some very key principles, some truths that we can apply directly to our life as Christ followers today. The first one, it is okay to ask for change. It is okay to have a present set of circumstances and plead with our God who is in control of those circumstances and say, God, I want it to change. That's okay, church. Plead with God and beg Him for change. The second principle I would say is it's okay to come boldly to Him. It's okay to come boldly and with confidence. Not in your own confidence, as we'll look at later, but in the confidence of our mediator. But look at David. He is coming. He's laying it all out there. He's laid it all out there in front of his God. Look, I am languishing. Heal me. My bones are troubled. He's not holding anything back. Remember, who is writing this psalm? Who's writing the psalm? Excuse me. The giant slayer, the one who saw a bear and a lion trying to get his sheep and he killed them. The one who people sang about saw Saul in battle slain the hundreds, but David has slain thousands. He is more athletic, he is more winsome, he is stronger, he is a better leader than any dude in this place. And to top it off, he was Mozart on a harp. This is who is writing this psalm. Let's not get it twisted here. David was a very capable, godly man. Very imperfect. But he dealt with some really, really deep depression my soul is greatly troubled there's many successful examples in scripture of people who have souls that are deeply troubled who have thorns in their side you can't read scripture and not see a character who isn't deeply troubled let alone that uh, there are many individuals pillars of the faith leaders of our faith who struggle in this same way. Why do I say that? If you feel sorrow, pain, grief, lament, it's okay. You're in good company. You're in good company. Do you hear that? 
major, lieutenant colonel, Mascuta resident, blue-collar worker. It's not impressive that you can remain stoic in the middle of great pain. That is not what the Lord wants of you. He doesn't want dependence on yourself. He wants you in the middle of the pain and darkness to run to him, to cling to him. Um, a man that has formed a, a lot of my thinking and theology, probably a lot of yours too without knowing his name's Charles Spurgeon. He notedly, his favorite prayer as we look at the end, <clears throat> excuse me, we look at the end of verse 3, David asks a rhetorical question. What does he say? Oh Lord, how long? How long? Charles Spurgeon, this was his favorite prayer. A man who also dealt with depression and deep, deep sorrow. He asks, God, how long? How long? How long? How long does my family member have left, God? How long until you take this burden from me? How long am I going to remain in this marriage that feels empty? How long am I going to be at this job where I'm not satisfied? God, how long? How long? It's a great, great prayer. I know it's the summer, but I do have some homework for you. Go home, when you go home, and listen to this song. This song is called Miracle or Not. I'm getting a couple nods, so maybe some of you have heard this song. Miracle or Not, it's by a gal named Alyssa Turner. She, you can go on YouTube, type in Miracle or Not. She does like a little background of where, how the story, how she wrote the song. It is incredible, incredible song of lament and honest truth before God. I'm going to read to you a couple of the verses here. See if you connect with this. <clears throat> how long will I hear the stories of how you were able? How long will I have to celebrate the miracle that's not my own? How long will I lift my voice and sing again that you are always good? When I'm feeling all this distance, I thought I never would. How long? How long will I give myself before I give up waiting? How long will I have to hide behind the smile that says that I'm okay? How long will I hold on to the promises I thought I heard you speak when every passing day just leaves me broken down and weak? What an honest prayer. What a sobering truth that we live in a broken world. Some of you in varying degrees, maybe more than some of us, you understand that reality. You know the brokenness. You have personally felt and experienced the brokenness in this world. It grieves me, but more than it grieves me, it grieves our God. In fact, it grieved him so much, he was willing to do something about it. That's the good news. Let's keep going. Verse 4 and 5. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there's no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? David keeps on asking for deliverance. But look, what does he, he could ask, God, save me. I, I slayed the giant. I've, I've ruled, I brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. I have led your people into godliness and worship of you and not these false idols and false gods look at what but he doesn't ask on the merit of what he has done what does he do he he says save me for the sake of your steadfast love notice this psalm is general but in specific or i'm sorry this is specific but in general the book of psalms there's it's littered with language be merciful to me because of 
your unfailing love. Brandon just read Psalm 103. Because you have separated my sins as far as the east is from the west. Again, a reminder, it's not about you. And asking and reminding, this is about our Lord. Let's keep going. Uh, David, here we see his humanity. We see him, he's talking reasonably to God. God, you promised to bless me. God, didn't you anoint me in the field when I was a boy and you had all my brothers lined up and I was the last one to get there? And didn't you anoint me? Didn't you promise to me a lineage that the Savior would come from and that the people, that your people would be blessed? God, didn't, didn't, you, didn't you say that? He's trying to reason with God. Don't, don't we try to reason with God? <clears throat> and then we get the sense we just get the sense here of God, um, I'm sorry, of David. He's just like, I, I don't understand. Have you been there? God, what is happening right now? I don't understand. I love this prayer. I love this prayer, and I, I honest, um, I pray it often. I pray it often, and I think that sometimes... We can, as a culture, especially a Christian culture, we are so quick to sweep under the rug the feeling of, God, I don't understand. How long, God? I'm begging you, my bones are troubled. I'm languishing, I'm anguish. But we're so quick to put on the smiling face, say, I'm okay, I'm good. And inside you're rotting away. I believe our pride can compound our sorrow. And not allowing you to feel and experience the, the brokenness, the reality that this world is not how it's supposed to be, guys. The feeling of remorse, and we, we put on the smile. Because in that moment, we're trusting in ourself. We're trusting in our ability to if I don't think about it, or if I mask it with busyness, or pleasure, or alcohol, or fill in the blank, that will do the job of making me feel better instead of presenting it to our Father. Where, where else should a child go but to their father? I know this is heavy. I was in the car, or I'm sorry, we were just sitting around, me and, and my two girls, and we were talking there at the age, kind of like, Daddy, I'm going to marry you, you know, and I'm like, well, honey, you can't marry me, I'm already married, she's like, well, fine, I'm marrying mom, and I'm, honey, that's, you can't do that either, we'll, we'll talk about that, you know, but they're like, well, why did you get married to mom? I'm like, well, you know, the Lord is, you know, I give the Christian answer, uh, the Lord has brought me this beautiful woman, and I love her, and I care about her. Well, why do you love her? Jeez, oh, you know, it's a great, great question. But imagine me sitting in my <clears throat> living room as, you know, a TV show is on or something, or some songs are on, and me trying to explain the complexities of love to my six-year-old and my four-year-old. That is this commitment and it's a feeling, and it's romance, but it's also sacrifice. And you, explaining the emotions of love to a little child is, is foolish, but it didn't stop them from coming to me and asking, and why do we? Why do we stop and not ask our Heavenly Father about these things? He might say, wait. You know, one day, I told them, I said, girls, well, you know, one day you will understand love. And mommy and daddy love you because God has loved us first. But it's okay if you don't understand right now. While you're waiting, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Verse 6 and 7, we're moving along. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch 
with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. This is the verse you want on a coffee cup. All right? These, this is the passage you want embroidered on a little pillow, throw pillow, and you put it up there, right? You get this tattoo on your back, and you're, you're a real one, okay? This is deep, deep pain. There's no way around it. He's in deep sorrow. First read this, and I think you could read this and almost say, I mean, seriously, David, are you putting on... Like, get it together. Figure it out, man. This is dramatic. You're being dramatic, man. Didn't you slay the giant? Didn't you kill a lion and a bear when you were a kid? This is the example we see. Yes, he did all those things. But again, he approaches God. He calls out with honesty and boldness with confidence not in it not of himself but the understanding that God is good as if God isn't aware he teaches us that it is okay to be needy I think neediness is one of the most ugly things in our culture we would consider someone who is ungrateful and someone who is needy pariahs and be an established, be, a, be someone that helps the community. Don't be someone that's needy. And Now, there sure are people who are needy and leeches and do it out of evilness, but neediness, dependence is a beautiful thing, and it's how you're created. You were created. Do you have in control of you if your heart's beating right now? You are needy for the, even the heart in your heart to, to beat, for your lungs to pump oxygen through your body, you have no control over that. You have no control. You and I are so needy. This pastor, I really like, Matt Smethurst, he says, you've never committed a sin too big for God's mercy. And listen to this. You've never faced a trial too small for his concern. You've never faced anything so tri- that's too trivial for God. But I hear that a lot. Eh, God's busy. Yeah, I, don't, I don't need to bother him with my small stuff. You know, you start making a pattern of that. Then when the big stuff happens, you won't go to God either. You'll go to the things that you've been going to because we're creatures of habit and we're dependent. We're needy. You know, our sorrow, I said, can be compounded by our pride not calling out in a time of need. So what does that mean practically? I'd say be that person at GC. Be that person when you're at Gospel Community this week. Say, guys, uh, this might be shocking. This might be, I'm I'm in some real bad, I'm in a real bad spot. Share that with your group. Talk to God. Make the phone call to someone about your deep sorrow ask for help give real prayer requests god i'm i'm really struggling with guys i'm really struggling with this would you please be lifting that up for me real prayer requests out of need not out of pride it's such a blemish it's such a sign of weakness to be needy in our culture What's the lie? What's the unbelief in that? Here's what I'd say. Is that if you have a bad understanding of dependence, I bet you, if we got to talking, you would have a bad understanding of the gospel. The cross of Christ has nothing, the work in it has nothing to do with you. That is beautiful and sobering. It is for you, but it had nothing to do with you. If you don't understand neediness and dependence, you don't understand the cross. Be dependent. Our faith and salvation is dependent on someone else. So in times of victory, call on God. Praise Him. In times of defeat, call on God. Ask for help. 
In times of temptation, call on God. Seek deliverance. In times when it feels the darkest, call on God and ask for light. It's okay to ask God to change what's going on in the darkest time of your light. And now this, this has some profound truth in the Christian faith about prayer. If you've ever read the book Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, it's incredible read and it kind of takes the position the narrator is the evil one satan the liar and so listen to this when we pray and maybe we don't feel like praying there's some profound truth in screw tapes screw tape is the uh, the narrator the main character in his wisdom from screw tape letters listen to this he says do not be deceived wormwood our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, God's will. When he, but still intending to do our enemy's will. When he looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seeks to, seems to have vanished and asks, why has he been forsaken? And still obeys. And still seeks the Lord. And still comes needy and dependent like a child to, the heavenly fa- to our Heavenly Father. Not to an unknown God, but to, often in our sorrow, an unfelt God. Man, what a testimony. And what a... What a, uh, a a punch in the face to the evil one when in our darkest moments when we don't feel the Lord but we know the Lord and we persevere and we return to him. James Montgomery Boyce, a theologian, he, uh, he said, he's always there, God, even though for a time we may not be aware of it. That gives me great comfort. Now I'm thinking as I'm, you know, preparing for this for this uh, sermon, I was thinking literally uh, of a time in my life when I, I filled my bed with tears. Okay, most of the deep sorrow in my life uh, had to do, and I'm sure like you had to do with close family, and specifically in this instance when uh, my wife and I literally, we, um, our bed was stained with tears. Was we used to serve overseas for a number of years, and this was our first time we were actually in Thailand. So our daughter at this time was probably close to a year old. This is her first time in Thailand, and so we lived in a big country in Southeast Asia, China. And um, so we had studied the language, we had learned the culture of where we were living, but now we were entering into a whole new culture, a whole new language, a whole new way of things, new money, new everything. And so we get to Thailand, and our daughter, who is struggling for the first, you know, uh, five, six months that she is in country with uh, asthma from the pollution that she's experiencing, and uh, she's having a lot of lung problems, a lot of uh, breathing problems at this time. So we get to Thailand, and she's still really, really struggling with this, but now at this time, she's, is visibly something wrong with her. There's visibly, like, my little baby girl, she's pale as a ghost, she's lost weight, she can't keep any food down, she's throwing up everywhere she turns, and the only thing she wants is some sustenance so that she can have something to throw back up. My wife and I, for nights, we had little, the medicine droppers, and we're dropping Gatorade, we're dropping Pedialyte into her mouth, hoping that this is something that it will keep down. She ends up, she has pneumonia. She's, it's just a bad, bad situation. You know the saying, it really stinks. It's not fun to be sick when you're away from home. Well, it is astronomically worse when you're in a different country and you don't speak language, you don't know how to get the medicine, you don't know where the hospital is, you don't know if your insurance is going to be covered here in this country. And your little baby girl is suffering. I'm sitting there with my wife and we're crying because she's just longing for this taste of this Gatorade. And I'm sitting there, I'm praying, God, don't you know this is my 
my only child? And in that moment, I really got the sense that God right there with us, and he's like, yeah, it sucks, doesn't it? It sucks when your only child is suffering. Thankfully, uh, we, we, we met up with a doctor, and he was able to actually go and get some antibiotics and some things, and she's healthy as a, I can't, I can't get her to stop talking, I can't get her to stop eating now, but man, in that moment, what a picture of our Lord and his sorrow for his son. Why have you forsaken me, O Lord? He was willing to do something about it. Sorrow is a natural response to brokenness. Things aren't how they're supposed to be, and it feels wrong because it is wrong. This world is not how it was meant to be. Let's keep going. We see a turn here in verse 8 through 10. It says, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Now, some commentators think that this first in verse 8, Depart from me, all you workers of evil. They think Jesus may have quoted that uh, two weeks ago. Pastor Michael talked about when Jesus is tempted uh, by, by Satan, that he might have quoted this passage, um, Psalm 6, to Satan. It's pretty cool. But I love the confidence that we see from David here. And again, where is his confidence found? Where is his confidence found? It's not in himself. It says, his confidence is that my Lord has heard. My Lord has accepted my prayer. It's not in anything that he brings to the table, but his, his confidence is in the Lord. Now, I think there's also a little, the last three lines of the psalm. I think this is big. I think this is something we could overlook. But it says, they shall turn back, talking of his enemies, and they shall be put to shame in a moment. In a moment. Think about that. In a moment, blink of an eye, things can be different. Before you get home today, before you eat lunch, God can save an entire nation. He can totally uproot your whole life for good, for bad. But in a moment, this is our God. He can change. He can do the things that are unbelievable. And this is sobering, yet comforting. Because what we're depending on is God being who he says he is and not ourselves. You know, in this passage, we see the turn, like I said, and our culture, our culture, it really, I think the other end of the spectrum, we live in uh, Mascuta, Scott Air Force Base, East Belleville, the surrounding areas, very hardworking people very capable people. And so in times of need, it's easy for us to push those aside and keep our head face forward, right? But I think also in in large part, we can swing to the other side of the spectrum, the other side of the umbrella and say, our feelings are ultimate. Our feelings and, and how we feel are absolute. This is also false. We know this. Feelings aren't trivial. How you feel, what you're experiencing because of the broken world that you live in, it's real, ladies and gentlemen. But God has made us holistically, but your feelings, they're not ultimate. Jeremiah, the prophet, says, um, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can understand it? Being moved along by the currents of our feelings in our world. I feel this way. I, I, I don't know. I, I had a friend who's literally been engaged like three times 
to three different people, and because of how they felt about it, they called off the engagement. I don't think that is just a micro, that is a microcosm of our culture based on how we feel, but basing decisions solely off of how you feel in the darkest night, well, that's not wise, number one, but also that's slavery. Being moved along by your feelings and emotions is just another form of bondage. Paul Miller, author I really enjoy, in the context of Matthew 5, kind of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, again, go to our, we did a whole sermon series on the Beatitudes, it was phenomenal, uh, but in Matthew 5, when, when Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn, okay, he says this, bad sadness is endless, it's complicated by bitterness, self-pity, and denial, but good sadness is appropriate, simple, and honest. I think four truths from suffering that we can apply today in our understanding. Number one, this world is not right. That's true. We are not innocent. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Number three, God is not indifferent. He cares. He cares about you so much more than you care about yourself. And fourth, this life is not ultimate. This world is not right. We're not innocent. God is not indifferent. This life is not ultimate. Followers of Christ are not trapped in despair. We get the turn in this passage, and I'm going to turn here in this sermon. Our journey is filled with hope. Revelation 21, 4, this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. He, Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither, will be, neither shall there be mourning, no crying, or pain, for the former things have passed away. Can you imagine... A world where there's no more death. There's no more mourning, crying, or pain. Church, brothers, sisters, look at me. This is our faith. This is where we're going. This is what we get to look forward to. And I pray for change now, but I promise you it will change. I I beg, I'll beg for you that you, get, you experience change now. But I can promise you it will. We have a future. A future hope. Not because of anything that you've done. But because of a gift you are given. Jesus. All things will be made new. I'm going to go back to that song, Miracle or Not. Listen to that song, okay? Phenomenal. Here's the chorus. Here's the bridge and the chorus of that song. I will sing it till my broken heart believes it. I'll declare it till I smell the smoke of faith. And with my hands held high, I'll scream it in the darkness till hope is finally louder than the ache. As long as it takes for my heart to find its song. As long as it takes to know that I'm still not alone. And at the end of the day, I'll stand right here and say, I know that you love me, miracle or not. Church, this passage, I believe, has two profound themes, boldness and understanding. You know, sometimes when we pray, God does calm the storm. Other times, he lets the storm rage, but he calms his child. As we come boldly, write this down, Ephesians 3, 12. 
Why can we be bold to our God, to our Father in heaven? Ephesians 3.12, yeah, 3.12, 11-12. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Guys, we go crazy for access. We want to be in the know. We want the ability to go places that other people aren't. Guys, we have access to the creator of the universe because of Jesus. So we can go bold. We can go boldly. He has provided a way. It's okay to feel what you feel and bring that to God because he is big enough to take it. I'll be honest, sometimes I'm overwhelmed in the noise in my house. It's a loud house. And then Cat is doing everything and I'm trying to do this and, I'm, and my, my child will come to me and it's quick for me to, hey, j- just worry about that later. Or I'm, I'm brash with her or with them. I confess that. Our Father is not impatient. He is not brash. He cares for you. He's long-suffering. And He's not frustrated. He's not frustrated at you like, okay, they've been sad for a long time now. When are they going to figure it out? Okay? I might say that as a as an imperfect earthly father, but our heavenly father will never, ever respond to you like that. So please, church, don't glaze over how you really feel. Take it to him. And secondly, we have boldness, but we also come boldly because we have a God, we have a Savior who is understanding. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 As I lead worship, uh, I often quote this, this passage. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help to help in time of need. You are not alone, church. In present company, this church, your GC, the saints that have gone before us and laid the groundwork for our faith, but even, even more, we have a great high priest. And this high priest has experienced even greater sorrow than you. He was our author of our faith, the protector of our faith, the perfecter of our faith. So remember, as dark as it is, I say this humbly, your circumstances, our circumstances, are not an indication of our God's character. What is happening is not an indication that our God doesn't care, that he's not with us, that he did something like this to to punish us or to make us earn. He has a purpose for the pain. There's this one pastor, uh, John Piper. He says every millisecond, every millisecond, of your sorrow and suffering in this life is achieving for you something in glory. Every millisecond, God cares. Jesus' compassion, his ability to enter into sorrow and lament, this this ignored the, the, the religious customs of his time. His willingness, this is another quote by Miller, says, Jesus' willingness to face sadness, it sets in motion a chain of events that leads to the greatest act of love. Listen to this. This is, this is awesome. Because he faced his sadness in the garden, he didn't run. 
Because he didn't run, he suffered. Because he suffered, he died. Because he died, he took the sins of the world on himself. As Jesus moves toward his death, he shows us that sorrow can be a quiet work of love. I don't know what you're going through this morning, this year, the last year and a half. I don't know. I know a lot of people have experienced great loss, great tragedy, great sorrow. But know that it is, for, it is not for nothing. He is doing something. And you, I wish I could tell you that you would know in this life. But you will. You will. The greatest act of love the world has ever seen was delivered through the vehicle of death and sorrow. Now that is not a happy-go-lucky thing, but we can have great rejoicing in this church because although he was perfect, perfectly God, he belittled himself, condescended, and became human. He lived a perfect life. He died at the hands of the Romans and at our hands. And in dying, he took the weight of sin, the wrath of God on himself, and he bore it for you and me. But because he is God, death could not hold him. And on the third day, he rose victorious, proclaiming that you are forgiven and it is finished. Church, I don't know what it is in your sorrow, but please come boldly. Go boldly to him and be reminded that his compassion, he entered into sorrow first. Would you pray with me?